you're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that calls the creators on making a character with a name that has the potential of being misread as a profanity. Forgotten thoughts of yesterdays Through my eyes I see the past Well I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I Chinese corporate takeover version of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is a podcast, or if you prefer, an internet radio show that deals with the Green Lantern comics, running from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on my favorite Green Lanterns of all time, Mr. Guy Gardner and Mr. Kyle Rayner. Hello again, my name is Sean Ingle, or hello for the first time if this is your first time listening. However, if this is your first time listening, I suggest you go back a podcast episode, uh, episode number 20, and listen to that one, because what we're covering today is the second part in a five-part storyline dealing with Hal Jordan and his search for his beloved, yet slightly schizophrenic, psychopathic, warrior woman, ex, and probably current girlfriend, Carol Ferris, who, in the role of Star of Sapphire, is pretty much done some things to the Green Lanterns that, you know, well, really didn't help them out that much. The character of Star Sapphire has been, well, out of commission for a while in continuity, well, at least in the continuity that I'm covering in the comic, and this issue and the next couple of issues are going to be dealing with how trying to reconnect with her in that oh-so-special way, which will eventually mean him having to have a beatdown with Star Sapphire. We also get more into the character of Flicker, a, another sort of, well, not throwaway Green Lantern villain, but not really a memorable one. If you did listen last time, you'll realize that Flicker was an enemy that could basically fold in and out of space, had a head like Firestorm, a costume like, oh, basically a Victorian dandy, and high-heeled boots. Yeah. He wasn't really the most dynamic character. Add to this a, well, pretty much a stereotypical 90s executive type, replete with ridiculously big 90s sunglasses and smoking a big old fat stogie, and you've got yourself one heck of a 90s comic book. So sit back and relax, grab yourself some pan-galactic gargle blasters, because the pan-galactic placement services is pretty much in the forefront of this episode, and take a little break while we play some promos for some great podcasts dealing with a variety of science fiction and comic book related topics. And then after that, we'll get right into our review of Green Lantern number 21. 
So, stay tuned. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Fuck Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're... Angel. Oh, Reed, not you too! What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly! We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power! I am the 
greatest living mortal on earth. And now, mankind shall feel that's might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You guys can't change the way I can. But he's not the most powerful person on earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ravatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. And it shall sustain the drain of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com The Hulk on Podcasts. Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David. Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pad Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. the show before we get to the review though i would like to read a couple of emails that we got in you've got mail pattern baldness <laughs> and this time out they're both from mr stephen rogers yes the awesome stephen rogers not captain Re- america stephen rogers steve writes in and says hey sean i just thought i'd add to the conversation with a few thoughts i had about the whole alan scott thing well i guess my whole message last time about no news is good news is a little bit short-sighted. Anyway, the letter continues on. First, it's a damn shame that this means Obsidian and Jade are pretty much non-existent in the New 52 universe. 
while sure it's supposed to be a quote-unquote clean slate, but at the same time most GL's pre-Flashpoint history carried over, and as you will be covering eventually, Jade is a pretty darn integral is pretty darn integral to Kyle's history. Of course, it's stuff like this that makes the complete universe retcons utterly maddening. I couldn't agree more. The fact that they have wiped out the characters of Jade and Obsidian, two really important characters to Alan Scott's history, just to give him this character trait of being homosexual really does a disservice to all the writers who had put in all this time in developing the characters and, you know, making them interesting, fleshed-out, well, people. And yes, we will find out that Jade does have an incredibly important role to play in the life of Kyle Rayner, so the fact that that's all wiped out and Kyle's continuity kind of travels through into the new 52 universe, you know, from the old universe kind of makes things even more wonky. Steve continues, Okay, so this happened, but this other thing happened differently, and that never happened. But for a different character, everything is different. It can be quite frustrating to keep everything focused. Again, I totally and wholly agree. Secondly, and this kind of goes to the whole did they do it for shock value or not debate, okay, Sure, James Robinson can say he wanted to do this as a story element and whatnot, but at the same time, there's something to be said about a non-comic book fan reaction to hearing Green Lantern is gay. Alright, this is something I want to address as well. My wife, who is not a comic book fan, came up to me and said, Hey, did you hear the news? And I was like, what? She said, Green Lantern is gay. And I had to basically inform her that, no, it's not really that he's gay. It's because she had the idea that it was Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern from the movie, which everyone seems to know. Steve continues, granted, one look at Alan's classic costume might elicit a, well, there you go type of response. But Alan Scott is so off anyone's radar that obviously the first quote-unquote image that comes to mind is either comic book Hal... Jordan or Ryan Reynolds. Uh, One could argue that Jon Stewart, but for the most part, it's the image of Hal Jordan that you usually find to be the definitive Green Lantern, even if you don't know Hal Jordan. So obviously, it's gotten the quote-unquote figures look at him response, but for Hal's look and the way Ryan Reynolds portray Hal in the movie. To say nothing about the standard idea, thanks to stuff like the 1960s Batman TV show, that all comics have a subtext to them. While I was having fun with the whole idea of quote-unquote guy love and that sort of homoerotic relationship between two characters that is written to be a bit more than platonic, that probably the writers intended, Hal and Ollie, for example, and therefore write for slash fiction, there's an element there that the uninitiated viewer or reader in the case of comic books, could infer that yes, indeed, there's something there, when in reality it just isn't. I agree, there's a lot of buddying around that you get between male characters, and the entire idea of male bonding, especially between characters like Hal and Ollie, and Batman and Robin, and later on in this series, you know, Kyle and Guy, you get that sort of buddy feeling that you get in movie tropes and everything, and... Unfortunately, because of the sort of silly subtext that the Batman TV show and other things have given it, it does tend to 
make people think that, you know, there might be more going on to this than just a simple, you know, to use the silly term, bromance between these characters. And that, unfortunately, does a disservice to comics as a whole. Steve continues, I mean, I guess you could call hard-traveling heroes a bromance. There's Steve knowing exactly what I wanted to say before I say it. But, come on, that's every guy road trip movie from Easy Rider to... Well, I guess one could make a case for The Hangover being a road trip movie. Yeah, there's tons of road trip movies, not only, you know, talking about Easy Rider. There's uh, movies like Lethal Weapon. There's the Bing Crosby and Bob Hope movies. And there's myriads of other examples where it's two guys traveling together, but there doesn't need to be the subtext of, you know, a homoerotic relationship. Back to Steve's letter, he says... I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that by turning this into such a big deal, as opposed to, say, making Alien the core that just happens to be gay, and coming out in a throwaway line in the third panel on page 16, it probably does more harm to good than good to the overall acceptance in the mainstream. And Steve so succinctly put exactly what I was trying to say in the entirety of my last episode. Well, episode 19 that covered this issue. And then Steve wraps up by saying, Then again, who cares, as the mainstream media has long since moved on to whatever the f*** the Kardashians or Lohans or Biebers or insert reality TV show attention whore is doing these days, and quite frankly, someone dissing comics and comic book characters, as wrong as they may be in general, should be treated about the same way as I do with your apathy for sports. Well, there you go. And then he asks, you know, how do you survive college football season, I wonder? That's a good question. Here in Oklahoma, there are two major college football teams, OSU and OU, and you're either a fan of one or the other, and neither neither the two shall meet. Uh, it's kind of awkward because my parents were OSU fans, and my wife's parents and my wife are OU fans, so I was for a long time stuck in the middle, and I just basically decided not to give a crap. And Stephen concludes with, but just thought I'd share that rambling. I guess I needed to get it off my chest somewhere. Well, Steve, I'm glad you could write in to us. It was an excellently worded email, and it basically touched on all the points that I was trying to make in the episode. This really isn't a direction that they needed to take the character in. It does a disservice to former characters that have been written and developed over a long period of time, and it basically just seems that it's for shock value, and unfortunately isn't going to bring in more readers. It's probably going to alienate more people simply because even though I feel that having Alan Scott as a gay character isn't really harmful, there are unfortunately are going to be a lot of people out there who do. But after that, we've got another email from Steve Rogers, and this time he's writing about uh, some digital comics. He starts out with, I just remembered I've been meaning to do this for a while. But for those of you who like to buy digital versions of comics, legally of course, you can buy a selection of Green Lantern issues on DC's store via Comixology.com on various tablets and even PCs. While sadly none of the issues covered so far have been released, they have been doing a decent job getting post-crisis on Infinite Earth stuff out on the store. Right now, in fact, they are in the midst of collecting the Wally West Flash run, so I'm sure Dave Walker of Flash Legacies would approve. So I'm sure it's just a matter of time before they start rolling out Green Lantern issues from the same era. Though, as I said, there isn't much from the 
through 2004 volume, but it does start with issue 48 and goes up to the first batch of Kyle issues, including the CRR tie-in, the books covering the CRR and Final Night events, including Parallax issues, let's see, including Parallax issues are included in the store, through fi- issue 55. And then picks up from 99, or I'm sorry, from 97 to 100, which was a Legion crossover. And the 1 million issue that tied into the DC 1 million event. He says, hopefully they'll be starting cranking them out pretty soon, at least while you're still doing the podcast anyway. Yeah, I've downloaded a few app, or I've downloaded the Comixology app for my iPhone. It's a nice little app. Um, It's actually the first place that I read the Alan Moore... Pen Superman story for the man who has everything. Uh, the one that they adapted into the uh, Justice League Unlimited story that was just completely awesome. The app's really nice. It's got a lot of neat features, but if you want to read comics, you have to read the comics that are sold at the Comicsology store. And as Steve pointed out in his email, for the Green Lantern stuff, they've got a lot of the modern stuff out, the New 52. They've got a few things from the Silver and Bronze Age. They really don't have much from the era that I'm covering. Like I said, they've only got the sort of parallax issues and a few issues in the beginning of Kyle's run, uh, the 97 through 100, and the 1 million event. In fact, they haven't even covered uh, the two trades of Emerald Dawn and Emerald Dawn 1, or Emerald Dawn and Emerald Dawn 2. So, if you want to find that stuff digitally, you're going to have to seek out other methods, because DC in its, I'm not going to call it wisdom, has not decided to put those out for people who like to read their stuff on the iPads or the tablets. So, kind of disappointing, but I would hope DC would hop onto this, because as I've been finding out myself... These comics have been incredibly fun and have been a really good read and also, you know, develop a lot of characters that are still in continuity as we speak. And from what I gather, a lot of their continuity really hasn't changed all that much. But uh, thank you again, Steve, for writing in. I really appreciate it. And if you want to write in, uh, you can write into the show at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All the info will be at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. But right now, let's go ahead and hit our review of Green Lantern number 21. Green Lantern 21 was cover dated February 1992. The cover price was $1 US, $1.25 Canada, and 60 pence UK. The title of the book was Trials. The writer was Gerard Jones. Penciler was Pratt, Pat Broderick. Inquirer was Romeo Tangal. Letterer was Albert Guzman. Colorist was Anthony Tolan. And editor was Kevin Dooley. Sitting on a lone bench, lit by a single light, Hal Jordan gives his resume to an unknown interviewer. He tells of his skill with flying planes, his bravery in crisis situations, and especially his power ring. The blonde male interviewer asks to know more about the power ring, but Hal asks what all this is about. The dark-haired male reminds him that this is part of the interview, and Hal comments that he thought he had blonde hair just a second ago. The blonde-haired man presses Hal for info with the power ring when Hal starts to question what is going on. The blonde female continues the interview, and eventually becomes a brunette, saying it is easier for Hal to open up to women. Hal agrees, and the female asks if Hal enjoys conflict and being in command. Hal perks up at the question, but then wonders why he's telling her this, 
The interviewer says that Hal has a weak spot for women. Hal replies, no, except for one woman, Carol Ferris. The mention of the name sends the interviewer into spasms, which reveals her as an android to Hal. But as soon as Hal questions what's going on, the interviewer disappears, only to be replaced moments later with a new female interviewer beginning the same line of questions. Cut to the interior of a spaceship, where Flicker, the firestorm-looking frilly bounty hunter, and a stereotypical business executive type behind a hover desk discuss their newest acquisitions that they will sell as warriors. Flicker introduces Brick, Quarry, and Aa, the member of the Pumice People that was Brick's other recruit from the last issue, to the boss, who is duly unimpressed, unimpressed with the trio. But Flicker has saved his best for last, as he finally introduces his greatest acquisition, Hal Jordan. Hal asks what's going on, and Flicker tells him that he and the other recruits are being sold to the Pan-Galactic Placement Services as warriors. Hearing enough, Hal uses his ring to break out of his restraints, and Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, gets underway. But before Hal can mop the floor with the flaming villain, flaming because his head is on fire, and also, possibly because of his outfit, Flicker throws a switch in Hal's brain, causing him to pass out. Impressed with the new recruits, the boss can almost see the money starting to roll in. But one of his assistants says that Hal was mentioning Carol Ferris, who was one star Sapphire, and he knows the boss doesn't want to go through that type of thing again. Meanwhile, Hal is waking to a sunny picnic brunch with Carol Ferris. Wanted to get a little afternoon delight... Hal tells Carol to come here, but Carol wants to show him what she has in the picnic basket. Who's in the box? Oh, what's in the box? But instead of it being Gwyneth Paltrow's head, it's the jewel which turns Carol into Star Sapphire. Wielding her sword, Sapphire skewers Hal to the chest, and Hal runs off to find help. Strangely, he runs into Jon Stewart and Kat Matui, who Hal pushes in front of Star Sapphire, allowing the violet villainess to lop off her head which flies conveniently into John's hands. Wondering how Hal could do this, both John and the head of Catmut scream, Why? But as all this is going on, the scene shifts back to the interview, as the brunette asks Hal what he would do if he actually met Star Sapphire. And this is where Hal realizes that these people know where Carol is, because they were the ones that kidnapped her. Seeing that they're losing control again, Flicker hits the mental breaker switch again, knocking Hal out. Unconscious, Hal sees a vision of Carol calling for him, and mustering all of his will, he breaks free of the mental control. More McFightenstein occurs, and Hal zaps the neutralizer in Brick's head. Free from the control, Hal orders Brick to do the same to him, and then he zaps the other two recruits. Seeing it would be best to cut their losses, Flicker opens the airlock shoots the Green Lanterns into space as their ship folds into an alternate dimension. Fuming that the prospects know too much of their operation, the boss demands that Flicker get them back, and Flicker knows just how to get that done. In space, Hal is having no luck in tracing the vanished spacecraft, but Aa had some luck in the form of a captured underling. Angrily, Hal plans to probe the captive's mind for the whereabouts of Star Sapphire, but Aa stops him saying that they are not on a personal quest for Hal's lost love. Hal retorts with an offer. Whoever does the best on this personal quest gets the ring, 
And with that, the group heads out to find Star Sapphire. Again, in this book, we're seeing Hal be a bit more, well, decisive than he was in the earlier issues. One would make the assumption that trying to find his ex-girlfriend, who happens to be possessed by one of his greatest enemies, would be a pretty good form of motivation. But with that, let's go ahead and head on to notes. We'll start with the cover, which is a really nice sort of outer space scene with uh, Hal Jordan being wrapped up by the whip of Flicker, and... It's it's kind of neat because it's got a really awesome background. The starscape is really well rendered. The uh, planet is really kind of unusual. It looks like a gas giant to put a instead of a Jupiter-looking gas giant. It's got a sort of purple haze to it. Yeah, I just made a Jimmy Re- Jimmy Hendrix reference there. So there you go. Page one, we get Hal sitting on sort of a wooden bench underneath the yellow spotlight, doing the interview to the. Well, eventually you find out to be the robotic android member of the uh, pan-galactic placement services. But the scene looks far less like an interview and more like, a well, an interrogation that you'd see in sort of the 1930s and 1940s crime dramas. Plus, I don't know whether they just dropped the title or if this was editorial oversight, but the uh, book is no longer given the title of the Regeneration Saga, or last time out it was Regeneration Part 1. This time it's not even mentioned, so interesting little note there. Pages 2 through 5, we get a nice use of the stereotypical nine-panel page layout. It gives the book a kind of Twilight Zone feel as we shift between panels of Hal Jordan being interviewed by the person and then images of the interviewer, and and each panel, something a little different about the interviewer changes. One panel, it's a blonde guy. Next panel, it's a dark-haired guy. After that, it's a blonde female in a very 90s outfit with a mini skirt and a business jacket with big ass shoulder pads it's really cool except there's kind of a cheat all of the pictures of Hal and Jordan are exactly the same they've just basically I know they didn't use photoshop and I couldn't just cut and paste but they just basically used the same picture for a lot of the panels in fact I'm only seeing one, two, three different pictures. Yeah, well, no, I take that back. Four different pictures of Hal with just different captions. Same goes for the females. Uh, the pictures are essentially the same, except for the uh, word balloons and the coloring of the hair. So, kind of a cheat, but still a really neat set of panels that kind of gives an eerie feel to the book. Page 6, panel 1, here's where we get the introduction to the unnamed boss of the pan-galactic placement services. And boy, is he a stereotypical, sort of big business, 90s corporate guy. He's sitting behind, essentially, a hover desk, which I must mention is a complete and total ripoff of the uh, Invention Exchange from Mr. Science Theater, episode 502, Hercules. But the boss is this big-shouldered guy in a black executive business suit with black tie, really short, cropped, you know, buzz cut. And to make it the 90s and the fact that he's alien, he's got these ridiculous sunglasses on that that would pretty much make Elton John kind of embarrassed. 
page seven, panel seven, we get a good look at Flicker, and you're really upset that we got a good look at him. I mean, he's pretty much what you'd get if Mephisto and Firestorm could have a love child, and then they decided to dress him in an orange little Lord Fultroy suit, complete with ruffled neck. I mean, if you want to imbue your villain with a sort of sense of dread and terror, don't dress him like, you know, a Victorian fop. It just doesn't work. However, looking at his name, I did wonder, and if I ever, ever get to talk to Gerard Jones, I'm going to have to ask him about this and about the joke that they made in the Alan Scott episode about uh, Dobie Dickel's last name not being spelled with two S's. I'm going to have to ask Gerard Jones if he chose the name Flicker because of the possibility for lettering mistakes. Yes, if you get the L and the I of the word Flicker a bit too close together, you know what you get. In fact, in the same panel, there is a quote from the boss that says, Get to the point, Flicker, which... You put that little extra line at the bottom of the L, and you've got something pretty dirty. Page 8, panel 3. I kind of wonder if the Pangalactic Placement Services, the same group that makes those delicious, delicious Pangalactic Gargle Blasters. Just wondering. Page 12, panel 3. We get the uh, creepy moment of Hal's dream of being with uh, Carol and the whole sort of seven what's-in-the-box moment. She's got a picnic basket, and you're afraid she's going to pull something out of it that probably you're not going to want to see. But, as I said in the synopsis, it's the star sapphire uh, jewel that basically Carol puts on her head and suddenly turns into a very 90s barbarian-looking star sapphire. I mean, the costume's a bit over-the-top and very 90s, and... Carol is very busty and does have quite a bit of 90s hair. I mean, it's it's out there. Add to that that she's got sort of lopsided body armor where basically her left arm and left leg are pretty much covered up to the top with the armor, but her right arm and right leg are pretty much exposed. It's an interesting and kind of weird look for Star Sapphire, but it's no less ridiculous than the really slutty version that we've gotten of her over the past few years. Then on the next page, page 13, panel 1, we get Star Sapphire running her sword right through Hal's chest. I'm sorry, I know human anatomy. Where that sword went, she has basically punctured along, possibly skewered his liver, and Hal's not long for this earth. Of course, then in panels two and three, Hal sees John and Katma standing there in a loving embrace, and he's going, No, John, gotta help me, man. Come on. Can't let me die. Not me. Not Hal Jordan. Yeah, who's the self-centered one now, Hal? Talking about Guy. Screw yourself, Hal. Then same page, panel five. Oh, it looks like a Star Sapphire rolled a natural 20 with her purple blade. Awesome. D&D players will get that joke. And then finally, in panel 6, we both we get both John and Katma's head yelling at Hal, why, why? And it's, it's really an unnerving scene, and Hal is sitting there freaked out, you know, just waving his hand in front of him. It's, it's a pretty creepy scene. Got a nice horror vibe 
kind of along the lines of maybe Evil Dead 2. Then on page 14, we get the same nine-panel layout with the, sadly, the same images that we had on the first nine-panel layout. You know, granted, there are a couple of new ones in, but a few of them are pretty much recycled. I guess Broderick kind of got a break on this issue. Then page 17, the middle panel, we get Hal screaming at the top of his voice, you know, Carol's name. And for some reason, it reminded me of this one scene in the third Nightmare on Elm Street film, Dream Warriors, where a character who was essentially mute throughout the entire film suddenly found his voice, quote-unquote, aha, and used his power to basically break all of the uh, other dream warriors out of this Freddy-induced nightmare where they're being pulled in the mirrors. It was a neat little sequence, and it just kind of reminded me of that. Then on page 19, panel 2, we get Hal telling Brick, the rookie Green Lantern who's completely unsure of herself, to shoot her ring into his brain. Yes, uh, I agree with uh, David, Jeffrey, and Michael over at Green Lantern's Light. Why is it that the Green Lanterns have the affinity for pointing the most powerful weapon in the universe right at their head and deciding to fire it. It really makes no sense to me. And finally, on page 22, we get Hal saying that his mission isn't to track down their captors. It's to find Carol. Yep, good old Hal. Always thinking with his, well, his lower brain. But that puts an end to the uh, notes for this issue. Let's go ahead and check out some of the ads. And on the front inside cover, we've got the statement, Looks like Drax back in town. And we've got the Game Boy version of Castlevania II, Belmont's Revenge. Now, I played Castlevania on the NES, and I never played it on the Game Boy. This is, of course, the non-color Game Boy, so it's all in sort of shades of amber and black. But essentially, it's the same game as Castlevania. Side-scroller, whip things, try not to get hit by bats, pick up hearts... Uh, for what it is, I've heard it's a fun game, but I couldn't really tell you other than you know, you know what I know about the original Castlevania. And a few more pages in, we get a kind of horrible mustardy yellow page with an animated, well, a, a drawn hand underneath holding up three fingers in a uh, sort of W thing, and underneath it is the title of the movie, Wayne's World. Excellent. For those of you who don't remember, Wayne's World was, I think it was one of the first, well, I guess Blues Brothers probably one of the first, but it was one of the early spin-off movies from the uh, present-day Saturday Night Live, which uh, starred Mike Myers and Dana Carvey in the uh, roles of Wayne and Garth, two sort of, oh, just layabout guys who happen to have a underground cable access show called Wayne's World, where... On the uh, Saturday Night Live show, they'd interview people like Aerosmith, and in the movie, they interview Alice Cooper, and it was a fun movie. It's actually one of the better Saturday Night Live you know, feature films that came out. Well, in my opinion. And then, of course, in the on the next page, we get Get All the Action, Score 1992 Major League Baseball Cards. And I'm trying to see if there's anyone here that I know. Tommy Green? Nope. So, more baseball cards, more fun for people who love them. Then we get another ad for the Game Genie, 
which probably will be going away pretty soon because we're starting to see now the rise of the Sega Genesis and the Super NES. So we're probably going to see fewer and fewer ads for the uh, Game Genie since it was primarily for the NES system only. Then we get the Great Eastern Convention ad for uh, the biggest convention of the year in New York on January 10th, 11th, and 12th with such stars as Jim Lee, Jim Starlin, Bernie Wrightson, Larry Strohm, and Neil Gaiman. And to celebrate Neil Gaiman, they've got an awesome picture of the sort of scratchy-headed Sandman out there. He's creepy. And, of course, a few pages down, we get the throwback ad for the Fun Factory stuff. The uh, werewolf mask, joy buzzer, whoopee cushion, spud gun, uh, sneezing powder, and all the uh, other little things that you used to find in 1970s comic book ads. It's kind of a neat throwback that they're still doing this. I've got to assume that they probably had a lot left over and they're just trying to get rid of the inventory. And next page is the hodgepodge ad with the typical Atlas muscles and learning how to draw comic book characters, plus the little blurb at the bottom for the American Heart Association. And again, we get the same subscription ad with the uh, DC characters running at you and the uh, prices for the DC comics if you want to subscribe for a month, not for a month, for 12 months. But the page following that is an awesome one. The uh, layout of the page is sort of a red and white checkerboard. kind of looks like what you'd find at a, oh, an Italian restaurant or perhaps a French restaurant. And on top of that uh, page is a postcard with the caption over it saying, Have a wonderful time. Wish you were here. And in the image in the, on the postcard is an elongated man. And he's got a criminal wrapped up as he's talking to a couple of French police officers with, the, of course, the Eiffel Tower in the background, because no matter where you are in Paris, the Eiffel Tower will always be in the background. And it's an uh, ad for Elongated Man, Europe 1992, the four-issue miniseries by Gerard Jones, Mike Paraback, and Ty Templeton. And man, <laughs> Mike Paraback draws an amazing Elongated Man. And I've got to assume that this series probably led to him drawing the Batman Adventures, which was a wonderful adaptation of the Batman the Animated Series. Paraback and Templeton, I guess, both got ported over to that comic book, and their artwork really shines here as well. I think, you know, unfortunately this is probably something that isn't collected, but I think I may have to start looking for this, you know, when I go scouring some 50-cent bins at uh, comic book stores. The letters page has a few letters of note. Uh, Stephen Shelley of Sunbury on Thames, Middlesex, England, writes in asking for the uh, editors of the Green Lantern book to make Guy Gardner green, you know, turn the Earth's Green Lantern into an environmentally friendly Green Lantern. Obviously, this guy doesn't know the character of Guy very well, because I think turning Guy into a green piece, peacenake, would probably be completely antithetical to who the character is. And on the back outside cover, we've got another Three Musketeers adventure. Sadly, it's number three, the one with the pseudo-space shuttle going to find the obelisk-sized Three Musketeers bar in space. So hopefully they'll putting out be putting out new ones sometime soon, but unfortunately this is a repeat, so just letting you know about it. And again, on the back outside cover, we get an ad for the NES port of Smash TV. Again, the sort of Robotron game where you go and shoot up people for fabulous prizes like VCRs. But that about does it for this week. 
Again, I would like to remind you that if you're looking for this comic in trade paperback form, you're not going to find it, because DC hasn't been too kind about printing these in trade paperback or in digital form either, so... If you want to follow along, you can probably scour your local comic book shop and find these for a reasonable price. I don't think there's that much collectible value of them. However, they are really enjoyable stories, and I hope my synopses of them have been enjoyable enough to make you want to go try and pick them up. But that's it for this week. Next week, come back for a confrontation between Hal Jordan and his ex-love, Star Sapphire. It's going to be brutal. So, thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you back here next week at Just One of the Guys. Talk to you then. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, Green Lantern Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Engel. All images, stories, and music are copyright the respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else if you like to. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast. And be sure to leave a review at iTunes. I'll be certain to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Puddle of Mud with the song Drift and Die, off their album Come Clean. If you'd like, as usual, you can go to iTunes and download the song or the album, or better yet, go to twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, go to Amazon.com, download the song, download the album, or buy the CD there. You'll be helping fund the Get Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell to Star Wars Celebration 6 fund.